Well, if you do have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8, please. Luke chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 8. Luke chapter 8. And before we begin, let us seek the Lord and his blessing. Father, we are before you as creatures who are incredibly weak and you know our hearts and you know our minds, you know where each of us is at. And I ask, Father, that you would work in us, awaken us, stir us, that we might see and have understanding. Because, Father, we know that it, it, we are helpless apart from you and apart from your spirit working in us. I ask this morning that we truly would know you, your ways better, and understand what it is you're saying to us this morning in your word. For we ask this in your beloved Son's name, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we come to this parable of the sower. And we're going to begin, I'm going to read at verse, beginning at verse 4, and we'll read through verse 8. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, this is Jesus, A sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell in good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this particular parable, if you were to hear it like that, and you don't have any kind of interpretation, you might wonder, okay, what's he getting at? Right, what's, what's this all about? But this, and this particular parable is the first among many. We're going to start in the book of Luke. We're going to see more of this type of teaching where he speaks in a parable. And in fact, this particular parable was the first one also in Matthew and Luke's Gospels. So in all three Gospels, this is the first parable mentioned. The parable, and it says the sower, but it really isn't about the sower, is it? It's about these soils. That's what it's about. It's really the parable of the soils. And it's, it's a significant parable because it lays the foundation of those who enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking here and setting the stage about how the impact of his word, how it goes out, and what kind of results come from it. And one of the difficulties of the parable like this is how to handle all that is going on here. There's a lot happening, especially as you, when you get into it and you start to study and you realize, wow, there's lots to study about each particular soil has a lot to say to us. Not only that, this is the first time we run into a parable. We wonder, okay, what exactly is a parable? What's Jesus trying to do? What is the purpose of the parable? What, why does he speak like this? It's with these kinds of issues that I struggled even this week to figure out, how, is this, how am I going to make a sermon out of this, especially when it starts to grow out of control like a ten-headed monster? And uh, so what I've done now is I'm going to actually break this into two sermons. The first sermon is going to be on this section here, just describing what a parable is, the purpose of it, as Jesus made clear, clear here, and also uh, some the particulars about this parable. Because for us, 
we don't live in an agricultural world where this kind of lots here gets lost on us simply because we don't even understand what they're talking about. I mean, when's the, when's the last time you went out and sowed a field? So in that culture, everybody did it, and everybody knew exactly what it was about. And so it, not, none of the, the, the details of what this is about was lost on them. So we, we kind of have to understand that. Another feature that we're not seeing because we just read Luke is that there's differences between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew and Mark are almost identical, whereas Luke's quite different. So you might not have thought of this, but this does raise questions in regard to the inerrancy of Scripture and whether or not God's word is trustworthy. And so actually a lot of critics will attack the Bible on the basis of the differences here and say, you say the Bible's inerrant, how could you say that given the differences here? So that also, I think, is fairly significant, and I think it's important that we'll address this morning as well. So that's what we'll take care of this morning, and, and then get into the interpreta- interpretive details of what this means and, and flesh it out in the, in the practical aspects of it. We'll look at next week, because there's just too much of that. I mean, it's literally, we could be here for a couple hours just waiting through, and I know you guys, please, you, you do not want that, Right? Well, what I want us to start with this morning, what I want us to begin to see and understand is the first thing that's necessary here. The question is, what is a parable? A parable in Jesus' day, we need to, we need to understand what exactly that is. This word parable comes from the Greek word that sounds a lot like it, if I say it properly, parabole. Parabole. So that's where we get the word parable, which literally means a placing of one thing alongside another. A placing of one thing alongside of another. That's the literal meaning. But rhetorically, it's used as a fictitious narrative that uses people and events from human life by which either the duties of men or the things of God are figuratively portrayed. H.W. Fowler said, The object of both parable and allegory is to enlighten the hearer by submitting to him a case in which he has apparently no direct concern, and upon which there, there, therefore a disinterested judgment may be elicited from him. Which basically what he's talking about is that you can listen to it, you can hear it, and you don't cast judgment. You're listening to it as one who's completely, you're indifferent towards it because you don't understand and tell the punchline, if it's given, what is he talking about? And so you full, you're able to fully engage in it. Because until it, it, the, the meaning is made plain, it makes no sense. The connection has to be there. The thing that it's being cast alongside has to be made evident. This is what made the prophet Nathan's parable to David so powerful. You remember that? You remember how it really gripped David? What was fascinating about this is that as David listened to the story, he had no idea where Nathan was going with it. None. It was simply this fictitious story about a man who had one lamb and another man who had many lambs. And the man who had many lambs goes and he kills the man with the one lamb and to, just to take his lamb. So David hears this and he is furious. He was filled with rage. I can't believe somebody would do that. That man should be punished. That man should be put to death himself. And what does Nathan do? You're the man. Whoa. You see, the power in it is in the interpretive realization of what is meant. But until that comes, 
you have no idea. It allows you full engagement, full emotional engagement without knowing exactly where, where the person's going with it. So this is, a, this is the parable that parables can have. The fictitious stories are clear. They're stories about people and events. They're memorable. They're, sometimes they're emotional. And when there is a connection to the truth, it's absolutely clear. But if there's no connection to the truth of what they're getting at, it's completely ambiguous. You, 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 in some of the parables of Jesus, he gives too many hints away. They're, they're clearer than, than, um, than this particular one. And they can tell because of the certain people they used in it that he must be referring to them, the Pharisees said. Especially, you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan, where he's using the people in the parable are people like priests and Samaritans. And all of a sudden, those, those words have an emotional attachment, and they, can, they get the gist of prob- where he's headed with it. But we have to understand, here's something fundamental. that That's what a parable is. It's to come alongside, and it's to... With, without any hint of where it's going, tell a narrative with a powerful point, but that's not presented yet. Because the purpose of a parable is so that Jesus says here, um, if you look at verse, verse uh, let's see, verse 8 it is. And he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now what he's talking about here is that he who can understand what I'm saying, let him understand. Basically, if you know the riddle, then blessed are you. But they don't understand. Because even if you go down to verse 9, the disciples come up to Jesus and they say, well, what exactly do you mean? What are you talking about? You know, it's fascinating about if you were to ask a group of people, even if I was to ask you, most people that you talk to, if you think, what is the purpose of a parable? Well, the purpose of a parable is often... um, people think, is to make things clear like an illustration. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard preachers and teachers talk about how great of a teacher Jesus was because he always used parables. And they say this because they think Jesus' primary use of the parable was to help people retain the truth in some engaging and memorable way. But that isn't why he actually used them. If, you know, Matthew gets into the details of exactly why he uses this parable. And if you want to, you can flip over to Matthew chapter 13. You don't have to because I'm going to read a section here. Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 10. In that, that's where he gives the, the parable of the sower and the seeds and the soils. And this is what he says why he speaks in parables. Starting at verse 10 of Matthew 13. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's hearts have grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear it. So why did Jesus speak in parables? Was it to make it just perfectly clear? He's such a great teacher, he wanted to illustrate his points, and so it's memorable and it's engaging. It's like, wow, Jesus, those parables, they're so wonderful. No, it's actually so in hearing they do not hear. They do, in other words, they don't get it. So the point was exact opposite, ironically, is not to bring an illustrative point to make something clear, but rather to speak in a parable so that they would hear the story but scratch their heads and wonder, what is he talking about? Today, we use illustrations all the time. It's, you know, that's how we understand things a lot of times. An illustration will bring light. It sheds light on something. Because when you take something that you don't know and align it with something you do know and say it's like this, that's how we gain understanding. Because whenever we walk into an area of life that we don't understand or we're presented with a subject we're not sure about or it's unclear, what we do to make it clear is we we bring something that's very clear and very plain to us and very understandable to us and we attach it to it and say it's like that. Oh, that's when we say, oh, the lights go on, right? It becomes clear. That's not what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is doing, be like me coming up here and standing up and, and saying, telling a story about a me, two men wandering down a path. And as they were going down the path, they say this and so, and here's the setting, and this is what happened, and here's what was said. And then when I was done, I, I just simply, I sat down. And you would go, um, and what's the point? <laughs> You'd lean over to your neighbor and say, do you know what he's talking about? What's he getting at? Because a, just a, can you imagine just a story? All by itself is just a story. And you don't know what it's, what is it supposed to mean? And that's what Jesus was doing. Because in fact, only the humble, only the contrite, only those who would humbly submit to Jesus and come to him afterwards and say, Lord Jesus, I don't understand what you're saying. Could you please help me? What is it you're, you're getting at? Only those were the ones who would receive. Those were his disciples. They would come up to Jesus, and they were humble enough. They didn't think they knew it all. The Pharisees would never in a million years ever come up to Jesus and say to him, Lord Jesus, I have no understanding of what you're saying. Would you please enlighten me? No, they, they would walk away, and they're like, that guy's weird. I don't know what he's talking about. It's like, what is he saying? And the disciples are, Jesus Um, what did you mean by that? And then he goes on to explain it. Because that's the purpose of the parable. He knows that these people, he's going to declare to them the truth, but they will not hear it. They won't get it. They won't understand it. And so, in fact, ironically, why does Jesus do this? So that the people will hear, and they don't know what he's talking about. Which is interesting, don't you find? It's like, We're in a blessed state. Blessed are you if you want and you seek the truth and you go on to seek to understand what this Jesus is talking about. And in this particular particular parable, what is Jesus talking about? He starts talking about a sower in a field and stuff like that. And I think it's important to look at the parable's details and understand the cultural context in which it's it's stated. Because when I first read this, I didn't understand uh, the particular details at all. 
But then when you, the more you understand the actual agricultural details of the context at the time, the more you understand what he's getting at when he goes to interpret it. So to start with, he says that a certain sower went out to sow his seed. Now, this is, if, you're, if you hear the word, he's not a sower. He does, like, he's not a sower who takes a needle and thread and starts sowing, right? So we, we get that, that a sower, it's, a, it's not an S-E-W, it's a S-O-W. A sower is one who goes out and takes a sack in those days, and he put it across his shoulder, and on the opposite hip would, would have this sack of seed. And he would dip his hand in, a handful of the seed, and he would fling it. And he would fling it, and if, if there's a row, he's creating a row, he'd fling it in the row. Because you've got to imagine, it's a great big field. It's not like your little garden where you go up there and you plant little tiny seeds because you have a little section. This is a massive field that he has to seed. So he's not interested in planting little tiny seeds along the row. He goes out, and this is what they would do, and they would fling it. And depending on which the rows were, they could fling this way or they could fan, fan it in front of them. Now, as he's doing this, he gets to this section where there's a path. And on their fields, typically at the outside perimeter and perhaps in the middle, you would have pathways. And he throws some along the path. Well, why does he do that? Well, he doesn't do it on purpose. It's because the nature of the flinging, some just goes there. No big deal. It's just seed, right? Some will hit the pathway. It happens. It's, if you've ever flung seed, you know that it bounces there. And so when you're the first row especially, you've got your pathway. And when you get up next to the pathway, someone's going to land there. And this pathway is used all the time. People walk on it. The mules walk on it. Oxen walk on it. People pass through fields on it. And this ground gets hard like rock. And what happens when seed hits the pathway? Well, it just sits on top. It cannot penetrate the earth, and it cannot go in and germinate and come up. So what happens is it gets trampled underfoot. And the birds of the air, they'll pretty much clean it all up. So it gets trampled, and and the birds of the air will clean it up. That seed on the pathway basically ends up as bird seed. That's what happens. And in fact, that's what he says here. Some fell on the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. So... At first, we don't know what he's meaning, but all this has significance. Understanding the field, understanding the sower, understanding what he's doing, understanding the seed, what the seed is, what is the pathway, why, what's trampled underfoot, what are the, who are the birds of the air. These all have meaning, as we're going to find out. And then he says that some uh, fell along the rocky ground. In verse 6, and some fell on, and actually here it doesn't even say rocky ground. It says the rock, which actually is a very good translation. If some say rocky soil, rocky ground, but it fell, fell upon the rock. And what's interesting about this is that often we think it's rocky soil. Have you heard that before? But it's not rocky soil, in fact, because the rocks that would come up in the areas that they would till, they would, they would collect and they would pile up on the edge of the field. But in that particular area, according to uh, certain scholars of the area and understanding that, region, what he's referring to is bedrock. Now, bedrock is not rocky, but it's big slabs of rock that go up and down. At certain places, it gets really close to the soil's surface. And there, you can't toil that stuff. You can't break it up. You can't remove it. It's just there. 
And so sometimes just below the plow, perhaps, or just you don't even recognize it, there's some bedrock. And so it gets, it, the, the toe gets turned up but, and the seeds get planted. But what does he say here? And as it grew up in verse 6, it withered away because it had no moisture. Well, also the, the roots can't go down very deep. So that's why we can't even get moisture. So the roots are shallow. It springs up quickly and it can't get moisture. So this particular rock soil isn't rocky ground like you might think of, but rock slab area that's close to the surface of the ground and and doesn't allow the seed to penetrate. Now, this particular rock slab ground is um, perhaps more common in that area than we ever understand. Maybe you've never run into bedrock or understand what it is, but by definition, it's a bed it's like a big slab bed of rock that basically just goes up and down underneath the ground, and it's the foundation wall of, of the rocks. So this is, this is the rocky ground, or the, as it says here, fell on the rock. It's like bedrock is the way to think of it. And then he moves on, and he says this. He says, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it. The thorns aren't placed, uh, aren't a place where weeds, don't think of weeds, like, oh, there's weeds, because weeds grow all over the field, right? If you have ever gardened, where do the weeds grow? They grow everywhere. These aren't weeds. So it's very significant, it's the thorns, because in that area, in that arid culture, they would have thorny bushes. That's a way to think of it. They're not just like one thorn. Oh, one thorn, it went up and choked it out. No, it's like a thorn bush. And often, on the again, on the edges of the field, you would have some thorn bushes and some thorny ground. There could be thorns in the soil, and they spring up. The thing about them is they're really aggressive. They spring up quick, and they choke out the seed because the seed doesn't have a chance. It chokes it out from sunlight. It's too aggressive. It chokes it out and takes away the soil and nutrients. And so the, the seed that does spring up because it's good soil, it can't compete, and so it gets choked out. And so these are like thorn bushes. They're not just a thorn here or there. And the, the next thing we notice here is that this ground also has, thankfully, good soil. And some fell in good soil and grew up and yield 100, yielded a hundredfold. Now, if a field, if you imagine a field, you've got pathways, you've got bushes on the outside, edges and you got some spots that have rock bed on them but the words the massive portion of this field is good ground which i think is very encouraging because if you think of it that there's good ground the seed takes root it comes up it springs and and it produces much fruit for everyone so basically the vast majority of this field is fruitful and productive so just thinking about what Jesus might not, Jesus might not have intended this, but I think it's pretty encouraging. The vast amount of the seed is good. The vast amount of the soil is good. Now, whether or not Jesus intended to say this, that basically the majority of the people are going to respond, I think it's somewhat implied, especially, the, at least it's proper theologically. Because when we know the victory of Jesus and we know that the the word of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, we know that Jesus reigns and rules and he's going to reign and rule until every enemy is put under his feet and the last enemy is death. 
And we know that from, as we look at the, gospel, uh, sorry, at the book of Acts, the Spirit is poured out. And then what happens? Massive multitudes come, in, come to the faith and come into the kingdom. And they do so because the field is ripe for harvest. And Jesus talks about the, the, the field being ripe for harvest and the workers being few. So this is necessary to understand understanding these types of this the details in the parable when you have a parable the details matter the particulars matter you need to understand what's going on you need to visually even see what's happening see the sower the seed the different areas it's going to the pathway the stony ground or the stone bed ground and the thorn bushes and then you see the big area in the center that's cultivated and when you visualize that you're seeing and understanding all the particular details, and as you, re- as you understand them, when Jesus now goes to say, do you know what this is? This is that. And he, and he brings understanding to it. And when he does that, the better we understand this, the more powerful the application to our lives, as we'll see next week. The last thing I want us to, to look at here is this the parables, uh, the issues here that come up with this parable, because there are issues that arise, and again, uh, like I said, this brings into question the inerrancy of the Bible. Some people think that, hey, wait, wait a second, it, it says um, it doesn't, it says seed here, and it doesn't, it doesn't say seed there. It says this here, it doesn't say that here. It, do, it doesn't, it says here, it only says a hundredfold. And there it says 30, 60, 90. And one, it says it puts the, uh, the order in different order. There's differences in the details here. And if you look at Matthew, Jesus didn't just say, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus goes on to explain and give lots, lots of detail about what he's talking about. So we look at these and we say, hey, listen, this is the same thing being said, but it's said and it's, uh, there's different details. What's going on? And of course, there's a ton as you can imagine, said about this. There's, there's a lot of scholars get into this stuff and really dive into the details, which we won't. We don't have time to. So I just want to briefly and quickly explain to you why this particular passage, why we can trust it, and why we can know that this is the inerrant word of God. First of all, it's important to note that all, although the details about the seed, the pathway, the yield that it produces, and the purpose of the parables has differing details. Here's what doesn't differ. The truth. The point. What he's getting at. The meaning is exactly the same. It isn't, uh, it isn't like you have the meaning of the, of the seed in one means the words of Satan, and the meaning of the seeds in the other means the words of God. If that were the case, you'd have a fundamental problem. You'd have an issue. But that isn't what's going on here. So unless you hold to a view of an inerrancy where the exact words, commas, and periods have to be identical and in the exact same place, then the differences here shouldn't cause too much of a problem. What's important is that we understand that the truth is the Spirit's central concern. The Spirit wants us to to know the truth. Because why? Because he's the spirit of truth. The spirit isn't a control freak that is wound up as tight as a garage door spring, 
about exact words. The Spirit, you, you see this all over the place. If you want to get into the exact detail, the minutia, there's slight differences. And of course, here's the thing. The Spirit would be an, very concerned about the minutia, the detail of words, if it's absolutely necessary for the truth. If it's necessary to understand the truth, then in those cases, the exact words are given. The ex- everything is like down to minutia is given. But where there are differences, the spirit is obviously okay with the various differences, as long as the truth conveyed is the same. We see this fleshed out with many authors in the New, Te- New Testament who quote the Old Testament. They obviously are not concerned with the minutia and the exact details. If you ever look at the quotes that they speak in the New Testament of the Old Testament and you line them up, you're like, okay, there are some words here and there that are different. There's differences, but there's not a a lick of difference in the meaning of it. The truth is the same in both cases. The truth as it is presented in the Word of God is inerrant. There's nothing that you can, you can't find a contradiction anywhere in it. There's no contradiction in terms of the truth. You might see, you might see some differences in details, but not in regard to the truth. This also, I think, allows the word of God to be translated in all kinds of languages that don't have the same words. Every language struggles to find what's the, what, what, how do we translate this word? And we find words that work to translate the meaning, convey the truth of the passage. And it's still the powerful and inerrant word of God. The truth is inerrant. The truth is powerful. It penetrates. This is why when the word is spoken, it's preached or taught by different preachers. You can say a a thousand different preachers can present the truth in a thousand different ways. And it will have an incredible impact because it's the truth. And the spirit uses the truth to get at us. It's an interesting side note. But these differences give us some insight even as to how the Spirit inspires and illuminates the authors. He clearly doesn't do it by exact dictation, as if the person were merely a humanized word processor. Dean, say it. It. Now say, you know, it's not like that. Oh, you made a mistake with the comma. Move the comma. we can see that clearly the Spirit probably, most likely, brings the truth to their minds. And the important details and the necessary things that are are necessary to convey the truth. And then has them write them down and often write them down in their own words. In some cases, like in Matthew and Mark, there's good evidence to say that probably Mark, because it's the first one written, Mark was taken, and Matthew looks at Mark and takes the work of Mark, and then he basically says, that's a great account. I'll just write it down. So he, he takes it from, from Mark, and, and Matthew uses it for his account. There's, there's good evidence that that was the case, and why not? This makes perfect sense. Because after all, why try to retell an event from memory when someone else did a great job in retelling it? Makes sense. But nevertheless, some critics of the Bible like to get all over those, these little discrepancies and it, as if it proves the Bible to be not to be inerrant and therefore proof that it's not the word of God. Yet, this is because they view inerrancy as the, necessary, as the, as the necessity of there not being a single word that is different. And perhaps some view inerrancy this way, but it clearly wasn't the view of the early church councils who put together even the Gospels. 
because they had ample opportunities at the very, very beginning to compile documents and look at documents and say, we need to reconcile the differences. Because when they were first produced, they had, when the copies come forward and they're the ones putting them together, they obviously were not concerned, not concerned at all, to try to reconcile these differences. That's totally fine. It's, and it's fine. And they believe the, the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. And it was fine for them because they have an understanding of it that wasn't about all the commas and periods and details and the minutia, but about the central truth here is, is the same. So in conclusion, I want us to leave here today with a sure confidence that no matter the variables we find in the different Gospels, even as we move throughout the Gospel of Luke, and if you read other Gospel accounts and you see differences, the truth is the essential concern of the Spirit. And the differences in wording, in order, or in content don't change the truth in any of them. They simply allow us to see it from a different perspective, different purposes, and angles. And as long as the truth remains a central concern of the Spirit, those differences aren't problems. They simply allow us to see that God is okay with the human side of things coming out and proclaiming the truth that comes from Him. I also want us to leave here this morning with a clear sense of what it looks like visually in that world as we go to interpret it in the details as recorded in Luke. Because it's very, those details are very important, especially as we get into it, inter- interpreting them. And I also want us to understand that when it comes to parables, when it comes to this kind of content, don't expect when you first read them, when you first read them, when you first look at them, parables shouldn't be perfectly clear. Parables should be perfectly confusing. When you look at them, they should be the kind of thing that you look at and say, wow, what is he talking about? And it isn't until he interprets them and helps us understand them that we get eyes to see and ears to hear. Because one of the things that should concern all of us, every one of us should be absolutely concerned that our eyes are open and our ears are open because unless God, by his grace, does that, it is like marbles off a steel wall. We can't see we can't hear, and we don't get it. We're wondering, what is the point? And so, unless God allows us to see our own hearts and allows us to see his own glory, we really are in a darkened and lost state. And we all must plead to the Lord, Lord, help us to see, help us to understand This week, I challenge you, I'd like you to go home and you read this and read all three accounts and note the differences. Read all three and look at at what it is that Jesus is getting at here. And as we look at the, because as we get into the details of the minutia of what it means and its practical application of what these soils mean for our own lives, ask the Lord and plead with the Lord, oh Lord, cultivate in me a good heart, a heart that receives your word, longs for your word, understands your word. Give me eyes to see and ears to hear. That my heart would not become hard so that I would no longer hear, that I would no longer see, that it would become like blind, I'd become dumb, and it, just do- it doesn't even make any more sense to me anymore. Because it's the gift of God, it's pure grace. That if you can read and you can hear and you can understand and you can get where you're at in relationship to it, that is the gift of God. And we need to seek the Lord for it. 
Father, I thank you that we, we have your word. I thank you that it is the truth. I thank you that it comes from you and that we can understand it by your spirit. And I beg of you, Father, that we, you would help us to understand, you'd help us to get it, you'd help us to see, and that we wouldn't be blind, we wouldn't be dumb. Oh, Father, apart from you, we can't hear, we can't see, we can't understand. Have mercy on us, O oh God. Work mightily in us by your Spirit. And please, please pity us. Please have mercy, for we ask it in Christ. Amen.